If you please turn to me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went, went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, <clears throat> so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who, who is the Lord that, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I, I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Good morning. We are just excited as we can be to have you here this morning. Always a joy to have you. Always a blessing to be in the presence of God and in the midst of his people. I uh, hope the Bible reading is going well. It's exciting that we have taken on the challenge. It's also comforting to know that others are in it with you. It's beneficial because reading God's Word will bless your life. It's challenging because it takes time, energy, effort, and focus. It's also rewarding. The accomplishment will be great when you finish, regardless of how long it took you. It's encouraging because you have encouraged others to join us. Just last week, I received a call from a sister in Michigan, and she said she watches our service, and she heard of the uh, challenge to read. She took it up, and then she shared that challenge with others, and they are doing the same. And so you are encouraging other people to read the Bible, and that is such a blessing. So if you're in there, it has probably gotten tough. We knew it would, but please keep it up. Uh, don't be discouraged. You can absolutely do it, and it will be great when you finish. We are talking about change, and we are in the midst of a series on the subject. I believe this is our third of four. Four. That's my guess and my aim and my hope. <laughs> Hold me to that at least the next time we're together and I'll see, but I will try desperately to make it four. What we've said so far about change is that change is doable. It is possible. You can change. I can change. We can change. By the grace of God, we can. But we also noted, just being uh, honest and as transparent and as upfront as possible, that change is difficult. And all you have to do is try it to see that that is the case. It is difficult. And that brings us to our third thing about change, and that is that change can be deceptive. When you are making changes, let me clarify that sometimes people relapse. That's not what I'm talking about. Of course, we know that old habits die hard, and we know that change is difficult. We understand that. And so, if on occasion when you are making changes, you feel like you've taken one step forward and sometimes two backward, and then you get back in there and you keep going, we understand that. So, that's not what I mean. Last week, we also had a point in the sermon that said self-deception is difficult to overcome. And it is. But what we were talking about there was the fact that sometimes people need the change and they don't know it, or at least they refuse to accept that they need the change and they deceive themselves. That too is not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about change itself, that change can be deceptive. When I say that, I'm talking about the reality that happens to people when they seek to make changes. What happens is, and we'll see it uh, this morning, is that sometimes people really do want to change. They have a very strong desire to change. And sometimes they actually do different things, and so in their minds it really feels and looks like they've changed. 
but then they return. Something happens, and they return to their former life, and they resume the previous life that they sought to change from. Not a relapse, but a full return to the former life they once lived. That is the deceptive nature of change. Sometimes people give change a try. That's how they kind of look at it. They, they say things like, I tried that. And for a variety of reasons, they return to their former life, crediting themselves with change. Or some grow weary and simply say, I'm tired of trying. I tried, it didn't work, I'm going to return to what I did. This morning, we'll look at examples of this, make some application, and talk about this deception. If you have your Bibles and you're in Exodus chapter 5, that'll be great. We'll begin there. Our first example of this is Pharaoh. We're introduced to Pharaoh here in chapter 5. We know about Pharaoh, though, and we know what God has done with Moses in chapters 3 and chapter 4, and also sending Aaron to go with him. We are in chapter 5, and it's their first encounter with Pharaoh, and it doesn't go well. Chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible says, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Now, maybe Moses and Aaron was under the impression that, okay, we'll go down there, we'll do what God says, we'll tell them what God said, and eventually uh, he'll just let us go. And I don't know what they may have had in their mind, but it was not met that way. In fact, Pharaoh takes a very strong posture against letting them go. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And then he adds, I know not the Lord. Doubling down further, he says, neither will I let Israel go. And so that's really the way the book starts and opens with this interchange between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. That's his position, and he's adamant about it. Now, of course, we know that's no surprise to God. He told Moses, in fact, he won't let you go. Eventually he will, though, and as we read through the book, that's what happens. But God's response to Pharaoh's disposition can be seen in Exodus chapter 6 in the first eight verses, as well as Exodus 7, verses 1 through 5. And if there is a phrase you would want to note, it is the phrase, and you shall know. What God says is, by Pharaoh's posture, I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. By the time the book and this interchange ends with Pharaoh, Pharaoh will know. But coincidentally, and just as we pass by, I'll just throw this in very quickly, it's not just for Pharaoh. God will also say, Israel will know. The Egyptians will know. Pharaoh will know. In fact, God says, and the whole world will know. When God is done with Pharaoh, everybody will know. In fact, that's why we meet Rahab saying to the spies, we know. We know what's going to happen here because we know what your God did to the Egyptians and to the other kings. That said, the plagues began that knowledge. Chapter 7, verses 14 to 17, the plagues began. And these plagues are to convince Pharaoh of who God is and ultimately to let God's people go. In chapter 8, there are three plagues, the frogs, the lice, the flies, verse 2, 16, 20, and 21. 
And at this point, Pharaoh has not moved or changed his disposition. In fact, every time Moses comes and delivers a plague, Pharaoh uh, at first is hardened by his magicians, further emboldened to continue to resist Moses. Eventually, his heart will be hardened, and he'll just keep saying, no, I will not let them go. Occasionally, Moses will take away the plague, and then after the plague is gone, Pharaoh will promise to let him go, but then change his mind again. In chapter 9, there are three more plagues. The fifth plague, Moran, the sixth plague, boils, and the uh, fifth, fifth, sixth, and seventh plagues, boils, hail, and the Moran. Pharaoh eventually, after all of this, reaches the conclusion in chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. Pharaoh is now brought to a moment of crisis, and this is what he says. Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord for me, for it is enough that there be no more thunderings in hell, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. That's chapter 9. The first six plagues didn't garner that response, but this one did. The seventh plague, I have sinned. He says, I will let you go. What you and I both know, though, is he didn't. In chapter 12, though, after the last plague, the locust, the darkness, and at last, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh does draw a different conclusion. Notice chapter 12 and verse 29. The Bible says, Now it came about at midnight. The Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in the land. For there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, go and bless me also. It would be great if the text could end there and we might draw the conclusion that Pharaoh has had some change of mind, some change of heart, even a change of action. He's moved from, I will not let them go, to go, get out, and take everything and everybody with you. Change can be deceptive. Pharaoh didn't actually change at all. In fact, I don't know how much time elapses between chapter 12 and chapter 14. But in chapter 14, beginning in verse number 5, you'll read these words. It was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. Here's his question. And they said, why have we done this? Isn't it obvious why they had done this? 
Didn't the plagues, and weren't they sufficient to convince why they should have done this? But he didn't change. No, his heart is asking, why did we do this? And so, what did they do? The Bible says he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt, the captains, every one of them, and he pursued them. You and I would have been reading this from the front, so we would have read first about Moses and Israel. And before we got to verse 25, we would have read that the children of Israel had come to the Red Sea. And when they turned around and looked backward, the Egyptians were marching toward them. What we just read is why they're marching. They let us go. Everything's good. No, Pharaoh said, why did we do that? Let's go get them back. And so, they pursued. In fact, they pursued them up to the point of the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. The children of Israel walk through on dry land. At some point, the Egyptians make their way into the Red Sea, walking across on dry land, and then God returns the water on them. Verse number 9 of chapter 14, they pursued. Verses 26 to 28, they were destroyed. Psalm 136 and verse 15 says, But he overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. It's interesting that Pharaoh actually could have lived through this ordeal. He made it through the plagues. He could have actually lived only if he had changed. But he didn't change. And so he pursued them and he was destroyed. Let's make some application. Maybe one of the reasons Pharaoh's didn't change was because he may have felt forced. His present circumstances demanded it. He did resist. He was warned. He suffered. He changed. He regretted it, and he returned to his former life. You know, we went through this rather hurriedly, but we should note it wasn't just the plagues that should have convinced him. These are the words of his magicians. The Bible says, Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. The magician said that. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. But it wasn't just the plagues. It wasn't just the magicians. No, the people eventually came to Pharaoh. Chapter 10 and verse 7 records, And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. For thou knowest not that thou, that Egypt is destroyed. That's what the people say. You would think that in light of all of this evidence, Pharaoh should be a great candidate for change. But he's not. Because people often don't change when they are forced to change, even if their present circumstances and the evidence demand it. Often, they are brought to a moment of crisis, and they make a choice, not change. Pharaoh made a choice to let them go. He didn't change his heart. Change, if needed and done for the better, should never lead to regret. Pharaoh regretted letting them go. Many who make choices and not changes are angry that they were forced to change. They regret it, and they go back after the thing they let go. And like Pharaoh, often perishing to get it. Number two, Ephraim 
or Israel is an example. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 and verse number 2, the children of Israel, referred to in this book as Ephraim, had departed from the Lord. Chapter 1 and verse number 1 opens the book, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri in the days of Uzzah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, and king of Israel, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom in departing from the Lord. This book is not actually about the prophet and his wife, although it reads that way. It's about the last phrase in verse number two. It's about the people. It's about the children of Israel and their relationship with God. And Gomer and Hosea are used as examples, an illustration of the relationship that God has with his people. He was married to them. He went into Egypt and brought them out of whoredoms. They had been and surrounded by idolatry, and God brought them out of that, much the way Hosea had gone into and brought Gomer out of whoredoms. She was not that, but she was surrounded by it. They were not that, but they were surrounded by it. But now that they've been out, Israel has become unfaithful. So too, Gomer. There are children born to this relationship. Some of them are not Hosea's children. In chapter 1 and verse number 6, their names begins to be given. Chapter 1, verse 6, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lerohamai, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. This child born to Gomer and Hosea, many believe that it was not his, she was not his daughter because she had gone out of the relationship, and that would mirror what God is experiencing with Israel. So too, verse 9, where God says, and the Lord said, name him Loamai, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That is the nature of the relationship, an unfaithful bride to her husband, Israel, to God. As a result of that, chapter 4 opens with these words, God has a controversy with his people. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Why? He explains, because there's no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Instead, he says, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out in blood, toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn. Everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven, yea, the fish of the sea, and also they shall be taken away. They're going into captivity. They're going to be punished for this. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, my people are destroyed, God says, for a lack of knowledge. And with this in mind, God then says, judgment is coming. As you open up chapter 5, notice chapter 5, the first five verses. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. 
the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with him. This chapter opens or closes rather with these words, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Even I shall tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. I will turn again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. When Ephraim hears the words of the prophet, when they hear that judgment is coming, they decide we had better do something different. We need to change. And so chapter 6, you hear them saying, come and let us return unto the Lord for he had torn and he will heal us. He has smitten, he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. It sounds wonderful that God's impending judgment move them to the right response. Let's return to the Lord. And they do. Except, listen to God's assessment of their change. It's in chapter 6 in verse number 4. There God says, Oh, Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O oh, Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Therefore I have hewed them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. They're willing to give God the things. You want offerings, we'll give it to you. You want that? We'll give it to you. We'll make the choice to decide to give you what you want. One rendering says this, People of Israel and Judah, what can I do with you? Your love for me disappears more quickly than mist or dew at sunrise. Many people can relate to Ephraim when it comes to the subject of change. Motivation to change can come in many forms. One of those is detrimental consequences. That's what we have here. If you continue this course of action, your health will suffer. If you continue this course of action, you will destroy your family. If you continue to do this, you'll lose your marriage. If you continue to do this, you'll lose your money, your job, your relationship with God. Unlike Pharaoh, it's not Ephraim's present that's moving them to change or to make this decision. No, it's Ephraim's future. If we don't change, God will judge. Some people are more like Pharaoh. They're being destroyed presently. And so the people could come to Pharaoh and say, take a look at the land. Do you see what's happening here? Egypt is going to be destroyed. There are some people who are in their lives, and that's what's happening. Their present circumstances demand change. They can see it, but they're being forced. There are some other people who are more like Ephraim. Others are being told future results. If you don't change, this will happen. There was a time it was in their present. In their present, they needed to change, but they didn't. 
Now their present has given way to the future, and if you don't change, this will happen. This moves them to change. But like Ephraim, they start to do good under the threat. And like Ephraim, their goodness is as the morning dew. When the sun comes, it goes away. The sun is hot. The heat dries up the dew. And the sun of change is hot and often dries up the dew of lack of genuine change. Our third example, the Galatians. The book of Galatians, the people are the Gauls. That is the area in which they were. That is that's what they're called. And one author said of them that the Gauls are fickle people, fond of change. The apostle Paul went into Galatia and preached the gospel, and they changed from idolatry but it wasn't just that they left idolatry, they also loved the Apostle Paul. His words in chapter 4 illustrate just how fondly they regarded him. In chapter 4 and verse number 13, Paul says this to these brethren. He says, ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, he says, you despise not nor rejected, but received me, listen to it, as an angel of God. But more than an angel, Paul says, even as Christ Jesus. And then he asks, where is then the blessedness ye spake of? I bear you record that if it had been possible ye would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. You talk about loving somebody. Anybody say to you, you love me so much, you'd have plucked out your eyes and gave, is there a person in your life like that? Anybody you say that too? I love you so much if you needed my eyes, I'd pluck them right out. I wouldn't have surgery. I wouldn't get sedated. I'd just pluck them out and give them to you. Paul says, that's how much you cared about me. How do you go from there to chapter 1 and verse number 6? Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removing from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. How did they move from give you our eyes? You're an angel of God to us. You're like Jesus Christ to us. To turning away Paul says in chapter 3 of this book, describing them, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? In chapter 5 and verse number 4 beginning, he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. He concludes by saying, ye did run well. 
What did hinder you? Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? With Pharaoh, it was his present. The circumstances, the crisis of life was upon him. It demanded that he make a change, but he didn't. He just made a choice. Ephraim, it was the future. God will judge. If you don't stop this, if you don't turn from this, if you don't change, this is going to be terribly bad for you. In Galatia, it is instability. Paul convinced them with the truth. They were convicted, but they were not convinced. There are people who can relate to the Galatians. There are people who will say things like, I know I need to. In fact, it's their own words. I know I need to. How do they know that? They see their present. The circumstances in my life make me and lead me to the conclusion that I need to change. Got it. That's the present. But it's not just that. They also understand their future. If I don't change, this is going to get worse. This is going to get out of hand. This is going to get out of control. I'm going to lose everything. I'll hurt myself if I don't change. Such an individual might be seeking, and they might just meet somebody. And somebody could come along and tell them the truth. And like the Galatians, when they hear it, they're so excited. That's just what I needed. I wanted to, but I didn't know how. And then they change. And almost as quickly, someone comes along and disputes it. Someone comes along and creates doubt. Someone comes along or something happens that's difficult, and they turn against the very person who gave them the truth. It was the Galatians that needed the change, not Paul. Paul had the truth. He gave it to them. They then changed there is a person in need of change, and then someone gives them the truth, and then somebody else comes along and convinces them that the person who gave them the truth is the problem. They say things like, why are you listening to them? They ask questions like, who are they to tell you you need to change? They slip things in like, you know, they're not perfect either. You know, they think they're better than everybody. It's your present. It's your future. It led you to the conclusion that you needed to change. You sought help, and you got it. And then somebody came along and convinced you that the person who gave you the help was the problem. Let me ask you a question. If the person who comes along and gives you the truth is the problem, then what will you do about your problem that led you to seek the truth in the first place? This is why the Apostle Paul would say, oh, foolish Galatians, who's tricked you into not obeying the truth that you saw and you knew you needed and you understood? And then he would ask, am I become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. What are the deceptions? Deception number one is desire equals change. That's how people deceive themselves. 
Numbers 23, 8 through 10, you'll meet a man named Balaam, a prophet who seeks to profit from his prophecies. And he wants to curse God's people. And God told him, you can't curse them because they're blessed. And he tries multiple times to curse God's people. And every time he does, a blessing comes out. And eventually, the one who hired him, Balak, gets upset. I hired you to curse them, and every time you talk, you bless them. And eventually, Balaam says this, how shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? From the top of the rocks I see him, speaking of Jacob. And from the hills I behold him, lo, the people shall dwell alone, shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? And then he says this, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Here's an individual who desired to change. In fact, what he desires, he spells out. He says, let my end be like his, and let me die the death of the righteous. What's the problem? A lot of people are stimulated by the idea of change. It looks good. It's appealing. Sometimes they're motivated by something they see in someone else. Oh, I want to be like you name it. I want that what they have. I want to be more like that. They're, they're just enthralled with the idea. They desire it. But they don't change to become what they see. Balaam didn't actually change. He just wanted the results of change. He desired to die the death of the righteous, but he refused to live the life of the righteous. Instead of dying righteously, he died wickedly in rebellion to God. You could read it in Numbers 31 and verse number 8. You could read it in verse 16 of that chapter where he is listed as being the one who taught Israel to sin. In the New Testament, he's talked about in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. He's talked about in Jude, and he's talked about in Revelation. John, Peter, and Jude all say that man died wickedly. But what was his desire? Let me die the death of the righteous. It seems lost on many people that we will die the way we lived, not the way we wished we had lived. How many people see the need to change? They desire to be different, but they continue to live the life they are living all the while saying, man, I desire to have that. Let me die the death of the righteous. You cannot if you don't live the life of the righteous. Deception number two, talk equals change. Acts chapter 17, verses 21 and 28 is where you'll find this example. The Bible says there were certain philosophers of the Epicureans and Stoics. They encountered him. The him is the apostle Paul. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods. What was he preaching? The Bible says it's because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him up unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And then we're given this insight. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's the way some people are about change. They love to talk about change. In fact, they're always hearing some new thing that's going to change them. These individuals are always on the ground floor. It's called the ground floor because there's nothing built there. The beginning of a venture is the ground floor, but this is the second part, especially regarded as a position of advantage. You would think, and the way people use the phrase is, if you get in on the ground floor, boy, you're going to have the advantage of when everything's built, you're going to reap all the benefits of having gotten in early. This is the way some people live their lives. They announce their intentions a lot. They love to hear some new thing. They're always the one on the edge. There's a new product, this one right here. This is the new product that's going to revolutionize. It's going to change. It's going to make you, you need this. There's also a new super diet. Oh, this one, this is the one. I know I said that. I listen, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I said that the last time that it was, the, but no, this one is a six, six months later. You know what? This one right here, I was watching TikTok. <laughs> I just on YouTube. Over the, this one right, they love to hear. This person is like an airplane on the runway. Now, they have everything necessary to take flight. They have an able crew. They have an operable plane. They have fuel for the flight. In fact, they have the ability to be refueled mid-flight. But the plane never takes off. Well, they just keep coming on the intercom and updating everyone about when the flight's going to take off. The deception is they actually believe it will. The reality is it's been on the runway for a decade. Their life is in a perpetual holding pattern but they love to talk about all the places they're going to go and the many things they're going to do. You end Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17, and, and the Bible says that some of the people actually did believe Paul, but others said, we will hear you again concerning this matter. I interpret that to mean we'd like to talk some more. We'd like to hear some more and talk some more. Problem is, in chapter 18, Paul leaves. You see, Paul doesn't stay on Mars Hill. He goes to Corinth. And in Corinth, in verse number 8, he finds people. The Bible says many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And in verse number 10, the Lord appears to Paul in a vision and says, Paul, fear not, for I am with you. I have much people in this city. I don't actually know if those other people ever got to hear Paul again. We have a saying that goes, talk is cheap. What many people don't know is that God agrees. 
Not only does God agree, God said it first. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 23, the Bible says, In labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to punery. Let me give you that in some other renderings that break it down just a little bit more commonly. It says this, In all hard work there is profit, but talk only makes a man poor. Still another says, hard work is worthwhile, but empty talk will make you poor. If you work hard, you will have plenty. If you do nothing but talk, you will not have enough. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. What's the deception? Some people have change on their mind. Some people have change on their tongue or in their mouth. And so they think that because I talk about it and because I desire it, they credit themselves with change. Though they've actually made no change. They believe they've changed while everyone sees the same person doing the same thing. And this deception can last a lifetime if it's not corrected. Pharaoh actually did say the words, I have sinned. Not many people say that in the Bible. Pharaoh did. I have sinned. Pharaoh actually did let them go. He changed his heart, though. And so he said, why did we do that? Let's go get him back. Ephraim said, let's return to the Lord. And then God said, yeah, you love me like the morning do. From the time the sun comes up, it's gone. Paul says to the Galatians, you would have given me your eyes. And then he says, do I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? By Balaam asked, let me die the death of the righteous. He didn't. The Stoics love to hear and tell some new thing. If change is needed to get what we want, then we can't have it. Then we can't have what we want if we are not willing to change. If you have to change to get it, and you're unwilling to change, then you can never have it. Only those who do will be blessed by God. James says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, this man, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. We have no right to have it if we're not willing to change to get it. You're not a Christian this morning. I'm sorry, friends, but the truth is you have no right to heaven if you will not change and come to Jesus. If you will not come to Jesus, God will not bring you to heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except through him. And so the greatest and most significant change in anybody's life it's to change from darkness to light, from lost to saved, from a child of the devil into the child of God. How do you do that? 
You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24, Jesus said, If you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. And where I am, you cannot come. You change your heart and your mind. The Bible calls it repentance. A new mind. That's why there's so much emphasis on learning, because you need the new information to learn to change your mind about the previous information you once believed and thought. Jesus said, without repentance, you'll perish, Luke 13, 3 and 5. We confess the name of Jesus, Romans 10, 9 and 10. We do that. It brings us unto salvation. But in order to be saved, we must be buried with him in baptism, Romans 6, 3 through 5, so that after that death and that burial and that resurrection, we can then walk in newness of life. The newness of life can never begin without the death and the burial and the resurrection of the old man. The old man can't walk the new life. The old man can't be a child of God. The old man has sin that must be cleansed, and only God and the blood of Jesus can do that. And friends, if you've never done that, you need to. But if you have, if you need to change, and friends, don't be deceived. Take your present and take inventory. Consider your future and what will happen if you persist. And then be committed to, if change is necessary, find and obey the truth on that matter. Embrace that and change. Change is doable, absolutely possible. Change is difficult. And change can be deceptive if you and I don't change our hearts, which is what we'll talk about in our next sermon together. Subject to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.